Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, folks. Welcome to New Books and Performing Arts, a channel on the New Books Network. I am Emily Allen, your host for this episode. Our guest for today is Dr. Katrina M. Phillips, author of Staging Indigeneity, Savage Tourism, and the Performance of Native American History, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2021. As tourists increasingly moved across the United States in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, a surprising number of communities looked to capitalize on the histories of Native American people to create tourist attractions, local stage performances that claimed to honor an indigenous past while depicting that past on white settlers' terms. Linking the origins of these performances to their present-day incarnations, this incisive book reveals how they constituted what Katrina Phillips calls salvage tourism. Across time, Phillips argues tourism, nostalgia, and authenticity converge in the creation of salvage tourism, which blends tourism and history, contestations over citizenship, identity, belonging, and the continued use of Indians and Indianists as a means of escape, entertainment, and economic development. So a little bit more about our guest. Dr. Katrina Phillips is Assistant Professor of American Indian History at McAllister College. So welcome, Dr. Phillips. Hi, Emily. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm looking forward to our talk, and I think our listeners will enjoy it as well. Um, So before we dive into the book, would you mind telling our listeners a little bit more about yourself? Sure. So I am an enrolled member of the Red Cliff Band of Lake Superior Ojibwe, and our reservation is very far north in Wisconsin. My joke is that you can't go any farther north because there's a great lake in the way. Um, And so... (laughs) It helps for, you know, geographic purposes, things like that. So, yeah, I grew up about, you know, 90 minutes away from the reservation, you know, grew up going back there on on a regular basis. And honestly, one of one of the kind of reasons I ended up writing this book is because I cannot believe I'm about to admit this on this podcast. But when I grew when I was little, when I was growing up. I wanted to be on Broadway. And so, you know, performance was, was always a big part of my life. Um, still is a big part of my life with my research and things like that. But I also didn't realize that like you could be a professional historian. You know, I, I loved history, loved reading about it and things like that, but it wasn't until I got to college that I realized I could actually be a, a historian. You know, my, my dad was a high school English teacher and, you know, has published several books and like hundreds of, you know, smaller pieces and things like that. But I didn't realize I could, that I could do something like that. And so it's been, it's been a really fun journey to get to this point. And I think having a chance where I can kind of combine a couple of things that I really love has, you know, been one of the best parts of, of being a historian so far. Yeah, that's awesome. And, you know, so what was that like for you, like in working on the research process for this book and, you know, bringing these two worlds together, I guess? So 
I found this topic, one of my favorite things to do when I talk to, you know, other, other researchers and things like that is to hear about how they got to their topics in the first place. And I actually stumbled on this research topic on a trip back to the reservation. Um, when I was growing up, we would go back every year for the Bayfield Apple Fest. And so Bayfield is the town that's right next to the reservation. And every year it's this big festival with like, you know, all of the orchards in town and literally like thousands of people go to Bayfield, you know, um, for this every year. And, you know, one time my mom and I went back, this was when I was in grad school. Like my dad had called and he was like, the Apple Fest is this weekend. You should come home and go with your mom. And everybody who's like gone to grad school or who's in academia knows that October is like the last time you want to go anywhere. (laughs) And, you know, I say that if you've ever met my dad, you already know how the story ends. So I went home and (laughs) my mom and I drove up to the reservation and went to the, the orchard that we've always gone to, you know, it's the only orchard we've ever gone to. And, you know, those like little rotating racks of books that you find in all the like small town stores and things like that. I went to that rack of books and I found this thing that was called the Indian pageant cookbook. And it was a reprint of this cookbook that had been put together in the 1920s by the Bayfield Civic League in order to raise funds for this this pageant that they were going to do. And, you know, I looked in the back and it was talking about this massive Indian pageant that was staged on our reservation in the 1920s. And I will never forget this. I turned to my mom and I was like, you know, I study like performance, right? And history and stuff like this kind of seems like something you, you probably should have told me about. And my mom had the same look on her face that that I did. And she was like, I have literally never heard about this. And so I bought the cookbook and, you know, came back home or came back, you know, down to the cities after the Apple Fest. And I was like, this is the strangest thing I've ever heard. Like I, I need to know more. And I started digging through the archives of the Wisconsin Historical Society and not only did I find out more information about this, this pageant that they staged on our reservation in the 1920s, but I found that it also wasn't the only one. That there were, it was this like widespread phenomenon, this, this idea of Indian pageants and using native peoples and places and histories as the basis for these, you know, tourist enterprises and So that was shocking on one part. But then as I kept digging and doing more research, I found that there were similar productions that are called outdoor dramas that do the exact same thing. And, you know, there's there's differences between historical pageants and outdoor dramas. But I found some of these pageants and dramas that, again, use Native histories and peoples and places as the basis for their scripts. And so... Once I found ones that were still performed today, I was like, I have got to see these. Like, I've, I've got to check these out. And so I know that was a little long, but that's, <laughs> but that's, that's how, that's how I found this topic. It's um, 
like the first line of my book is that this is my dad's fault and it totally is. Yes, one book led to this book. It sounds like the cookbook. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's amazing. Like how you never know what you'll find, you know, kind of the serendipitous kind of things. Um and we'll come back to in a minute uh to, you know, those different types of dramas that you were talking about, like pageants versus outdoor dramas. Um, but to kind of also back up a minute, you know, so that looking at the title of the book, for instance, there's a key term here, salvage tourism that you kind of lay out over the course of the book. So can you kind of like explain to our listeners for some context, what you mean by salvage tourism? Sure. And so I, I use this term to kind of describe how each of these three productions uses native history to, in a sense, rescue regional economies. And it's a combination of kind of the theoretical framework of salvage ethnography and salvage anthropology. But I also combine it with the practices and the yearnings of heritage tourism. So if we're talking about heritage tourism, it's, you know, the experience of traveling to places and taking part in activities that aim to represent the stories and the peoples of the past. And I came to this term, honestly, in a conversation with my graduate advisor, Jeannie O'Brien at the University of Minnesota, because we were sitting in her office trying to figure out why each of these productions occurred when they did. Like, what's the genesis behind each one of these? Why are, and, you know, I I know we're going to get to this in a little bit, but it was like, you know, why did the Happy Canyon Indian Pageant and Wild West show started in the 1910s. Why did Unto These Hills start in the 1950s? Why did Tecumseh start in the 1970s? And we were sitting there talking about, you know, it's it's tourism, but it's like they're trying to salvage something. And it's, we both just kind of went, oh my God, salvage tourism. And, <laughs> and it's, and the the reason I think this term is so important is because it's explicitly tied up in this idea, again, if we're thinking back to salvage anthropology and salvage ethnography, you know, that idea of trying to salvage native cultures before, you know, as so many anthropologists and ethnographers believed that native peoples were inevitably going to disappear. And I also argue that it builds on ideas of this nostalgic past through the nation building practices of tourism and the fact that tourism history, the history of tourism in America is really entrenched in the creation of a distinct American identity. You know, that, that idea of trying to continually ensure that America is different than Europe and it's, and it has its own identity and things like that. And so that's, that's where the, the term comes up or that's where the term comes from. And it's, it's been really fascinating to create this framework and then be able to use it to explain the genesis of each of, of these productions. Yeah. And speaking of the productions, you, you know, you mentioned that you're focusing on three um, and again, just kind of building some context here, you know, you were talking about how 
historical pageants differ technically from outdoor dramas. So can you kind of spell out for the listeners what those different, I guess, genres like mean? And then kind of as a whole, when you're looking at these different case studies, what are some of the tensions you see, right? Like in terms, you know, especially as a historian looking at performance, what do you see in terms of fact versus myth? You know, what's going on when there are native performers versus non-native performers? So can you kind of talk about the scene here? Sure. And so when we're talking about historical dramas, these, or sorry, when we're talking about historical pageants, these are productions that were, they really dominated the American landscape in the late 19th and the early 20th centuries. And these are pageants that primarily centered on either, you know, creating a sense of civic pride or kind of boosting up civic pride. And they were dramatic presentations where there's kind of, you know, a running theme or a series of events that take the place of a plot. And these are productions that had hundreds of people participating. And pageants are different than plays. They're they're not the same thing. And so Lawrence Avery calls them chronicles with events following one another as historical chronology, not dramatic necessity dictated. And, you know, there when we think about pageantry, it's that kind of over the top and, you know, there wasn't dialogue that we see when we're talking about plays or musicals or dramas or things like that. It's like, you know, you have people who are representatives of prominent figures. So, you know, if someone was portraying George Washington, they would step forward and be like, you know, I am George Washington. I led the Continental Army in our glorious war of independence and then went on to become the first president. Like that's kind of that's the pageant, the historical pageant vibe. And they were really big, like I said, in the early 19th or in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And David Glassberg has a phenomenal book on this. And that was where I learned a lot about historical pageantry. And so the other type of production I look at here is called either an outdoor drama or a symphonic drama. And the main person behind this movement, the symphonic drama movement, is a man named Paul Green. And he wrote many, many outdoor dramas. And his very first one was The Lost Colony, which has been staged, you know, over by Roanoke since like the 1930s. And his big push with this new type of production was that he focused on this word symphonic drama, not just because of the use of music, but because for him, it was the best way to describe how all of the different elements of the theater. So, you know, music, song, dance, pantomime, you know, whatever, how they all work together. And he was really clear about calling them symphonic dramas as opposed to, you know, music or musical dramas. And because for him in the original sense, it was the idea that they were all sounding together. And for Green, it was very much about creating a democratic production, you know, thinking about these productions as being something by the people and for the people, as opposed to, you know, Broadway, where it's like, 
one of the main differences is it's like, if you think about what it takes to go see a Broadway show and the money involved and the time and, you know, you dress up, you go out to dinner, you go to the show and then you go home. And with these symphonic dramas and these outdoor dramas, it's much more aimed at families. You know, there's a distinct, you know, socioeconomic piece of that as well. And it's, it's really fascinating to kind of see how the shift from historical pageants to outdoor dramas happens in kind of, you know, the, the 1930s through the forties and the fifties and, and so on. And as far as, you know, some of the tensions that I see, you know, the, the way you phrase that question, you know, thinking about in terms of fact versus myth. And as a historian, that is the thing I have struggled with the most because, and again, when we think about pageants, you know, how I mentioned before, where it's like, it doesn't matter what the dramatic tension would be. It's like pageants follow the order of the events and outdoor dramas, symphonic dramas play really fast and loose with the history. And so it's, that was something I struggled with the most. It was like the performer side of me was like, this makes really good drama. And the historian side of me is like, but that's not what actually happened. Like that's not, (laughs) and that's, and what, what I finally had to realize was that the history isn't always what matters it's the performance it's what it looks like to sit in the audience and see you know Tecumseh in all his glory and to you know have that because they are dramas right like you're supposed to feel something when you go to a drama as opposed to you know a comedy or a musical or something like that like the drama is the key and you know in in a lot of the sources i found there's a, there's a lot of that tension, right? Like figuring out like, oh, the story is kind of boring. How can we, how can we make it something that people want to see? And, you know, that's, that's definitely one of the tensions. And another one of the tensions is between the use of native performers and non-native performers. And the book I ended up writing is way less about natives than I initially expected. And it has become a book that is more about how non-native organizers and producers and writers have used native history to a particular end. And that's also something I've struggled with a lot is just like, you know, I said, it's not necessarily the history that matters. It's also not necessarily the native voice that matters. And that's, you know, as a native woman, as a native scholar, that's a tension that I really, really had had a hard time with. Yeah, I can imagine like trying to like balance all that because I could you know throughout the book i could definitely tell you were trying to like 
balance all those tensions out like you're talking about like parsing out you know where you could go with something but like where you know these different performances actually lend itself you know in the broad scheme of things and that's really hard to do or to have done i'm sure (laughs) it was yeah it was it was definitely a challenge and it's but it, it was still really fascinating to be able to really like have to hone in on that to figure out Because again, if we're thinking about performance, like understanding the dramatic choices and the staging choices is really critical to understanding what we end up seeing on stage. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, what was it like for you? So did you attend any of these performances? Like, what was that like going to these, I guess, for you? So I've seen all three um, multiple times and it's, it was really, it was really interesting. And to go to Pendleton for the roundup and happy Canyon, um, the last time I went out there in order to get press credentials so I could, you know, walk around with my camera and, you know, talk to people and have it be very evident, like what I was doing there, I had to follow like the rodeo dress code. And it was really interesting to walk around Pendleton in my jeans and cowboy boots. But then I had to go buy a Western shirt and a cowboy hat. And so my joke is like, I contributed to the local economy in Pendleton by by purchasing these. And then, you know, I went back to the, to the trailer, like made my costume change. And the, the man who was in charge of handing out the press passes literally just kind of looked me up and down and was completely nonplussed by, by my costume change. And I will never forget this line because he just kind of shrugged and he was like, we all have a part to play in Pendleton. Wow. Oh my gosh. And That's interesting. It it really was. He said that. And I just kind of stood there for a second because I'm also, and I also joke, like I'm a great lakes Indian. Like I'm not <laughs> like that's even for us, like that's not, it's not anything like us. And it's, you know, so it was like, here I am an Ojibwe woman dressed like a cowboy out West talking to people about, participating in basically a rodeo and an Indian pageant and wild west show. And yeah, it was, it's just really interesting to be someone who studies both performance and native history in these arenas, um, both literally and figuratively, because, you know, going backstage at, you know, in Cherokee and, having the chance to sit down and talk with people and kind of see what's happening backstage. And then to go to, to Chillicothe where they don't really use a lot of native performers and to go from feeling a little bit more part of what's happening in Pendleton and Cherokee, but then to have that really sharp disconnect 
in Chillicothe was, again, something I really had to kind of reckon with and think about not only who I was as a scholar, but also trying to, in a sense, almost remove myself from the situation to try to approach it as an academic and as a performer, as opposed to having to be like, oh, like, what's it like to be a Native person operating in all three of these places? Yeah. How are you having to perform in these spaces? You know, like that, those tensions as well, you know, and that, ooh, yeah. <laughs> but I, you know, I thought that was really interesting about the book though, that you like went to so many different places and like, like you were just talking about like engaging with these different spaces in so many ways. And you were just talking about it a minute ago, like, you know, kind of your first case study in Pendleton, Oregon, you know, so can you talk a little bit about like kind of in this first situation, what changed in, you know, the 1910s context and, you know, what you were seeing like in more contemporary times? So what's really fascinating about Happy Canyon is that so little has changed with, with the production itself. And when, so the roundup starts in, the early 1910s and they add kind of a night show entertainmenty thing a couple years later because so many people came to Pendleton for the roundup and they had to find something for people to do at night. And so they do the first couple night shows and things like that. And it's very much, again, like the wild West vaudeville type slapsticky show. And then a couple years later, they add the Indian pageant part to it. And one of the biggest factors for Happy Canyon is that it's not really rehearsed. And that's one of kind of its, its claims of authenticity is that they don't need weeks and months of rehearsals. And in Happy Canyon, a lot of the roles are passed down through families, which is which is really incredible. And, and that that's one of the the most distinct differences between happy Canyon and the other two, but the Genesis for indigenous participation first in the roundup. And then later on with happy Canyon is really grounded in the federal Indian policies of the early 20th centuries, early 20th century that, really clamped down on indigenous performance, indigenous cultures and life ways. And, you know, I struggled with Happy Canyon and and Pendleton because it felt a lot to me like Wild West shows and kind of that where it's a really fuzzy line between agency and exploitation. But the more I talk to people, the biggest shift is in why people participate in Happy Canyon. And Roberta Connor, um, who's from the the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation, has said this in, in her writings where she's like, you know, some people love Happy Canyon, some people are ambivalent about it, and some people just don't even engage. Like, they leave town during Roundup Week. And talking with people who were a little bit older, they remembered 
the tensions. They remembered the history of violence and, and all of those things. And we're very aware of the fact that this isn't the history that Happy Canyon portrays. And then talking with younger people who were, you know, like my age, college age, kind of around there, they see it as a chance to be proud of their culture and their history and, you know, to help their nieces get ready to dance in the arena and things like that. And that's, it's a really subtle shift and it's a shift that's behind the scenes, but it was a really powerful moment to kind of look at the, at the places where different generations are coming from when it comes to their participation in Happy Canyon. Yeah. Like what generation, what it's doing for those different generations, but you know, what does it mean? That's really fascinating how it has changed and goes to show too, like with your methodology, like how important it is to talk to the participants, you know, and go beyond like kind of like that first reading of something like that. So that's really interesting to hear. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and that well, and that that was one of the hardest things, you know, like so many historians like we're the most comfortable in the archives and it's you know walking up to people and again, keep in mind that I'm like dressed in a cowboy hat and a western shirt going up to people and asking if they're willing to talk to me about their participation in Half Canyon. Um but it was like, I learned so much just from being there, from walking around and talking to people and sitting in the, in the bleachers and talking with people who are involved in the roundup and people who are involved in happy Canyon and, you know, seeing how many people are in all of the restaurants and how all of the stores have, you know, like the sale racks out front and things like that. But it's, yeah, it's, it was really an incredible experience. Yeah. And it sounds like, you know, in all this, you're sort of kind of playing tourist, but then not like in these spaces, which is kind of interesting given the tourism (laughs) framework. (laughs) Oh my gosh. There's a lot of layers there. You could probably write a whole article just on your positionality, you know, on, in this project, you know? I honestly never thought about that, but that's a really good idea. (laughs) Yeah. Like seriously, like that would be a really fascinating, like, you know, methodological performance of self, you know, kind of article. I'd read it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah. And then of course you shift gears for the next couple chapters to another place, you know, in this case, Cherokee, North Carolina. Um, And I thought here you're focusing on the drama into these hills and then going back to the tourism side, you talk about how onto these hills, you know, ties into the city's tourism development, especially for, you know, the Eastern Band of Cherokee and the Indians. So can you talk about these relationships here? Sure. And with, so onto these hills premiered in 1950 and they produced, you know, they had the same script from 1950 through the early 2000s. And then, you know, as attendance numbers were slipping and, and things were, you know, kind of happening, they spent a couple years kind of like frantically trying to revamp it and revise it and rewrite it. And 
a couple years ago, they brought back the original script. And one of my friends actually saw it. I don't even know how she saw it on Facebook, but she tagged me in it. And she was like, well, looks like you're going back to Cherokee. And I was like, well, you're right. But it was, it was a really awesome experience because I had, so I had seen one version of it, but I had read the original script over and over and over. And so to have a, the chance to kind of see a restaging of the original um, was was really great. And like what I talked about in Pendleton, a lot of the tension and the contestation happened offstage, happened behind the scenes. And one of the things I talk about in the book is that the Eastern Band of Cherokee had been engaging with the tourism industry for decades before we get to the premiere of Unto These Hills. And Unto These Hills premieres not only in the Cold War, but also in another era of federal Indian policy, which is the era of termination and relocation, where the federal government's intent is to, for once and for all, sever the treaty-designated relationship between Native nations and the federal government. And kind of the, the main government official behind the bill, whose name was Arthur Watkins, likened it to the Emancipation Proclamation, this idea of kind of freeing the Indians, if you will. But what's what was really problematic for Native nations was that termination would literally eradicate Native nations and consume or subsume them into kind of this one American identity, which meant that American Indians would no longer have that distinct political entity that makes us different, that keeps us different, that shows our sovereignty. And when we get to Unto These Hills, it's so incredible to me to see that in this moment, right, where the government is pushing for termination and succeeding on a number of levels, that Unto These Hills is very much telling a version of Eastern Band history that is meant almost as a means of the United States offering a chance to apologize for the Trail of Tears. And it's, you know, the original version, it's so devastating, right, to witness removal. And there's also a removal scene in in Happy Canyon. And if I'm thinking about it from kind of the theatrical element, what stands out to me in both of those is that in both of the removal scenes, they move from the audience right to the audience left. And so it's still that idea, right? So if you're like, if you're on stage and it's, you know, stage left to stage right, it's the West, right? It's moving everybody 
westward and it's a really powerful image and again that's where that like dramatic element comes in and a lot of the contestations over the script for unto these hills was because of how kermit hunter the the author of the script was playing with history and the the relationship between Unto These Hills and the Cherokee Historical Association, which was the association, um, is the association that puts on the production, was basically fraught from the beginning. And a lot of Eastern band members really did not like a lot of the elements of the script. But the Historical Association went on with it and staged it. And Unto These Hills became one of the biggest outdoor dramas in the country. And it reached, it sold its millionth ticket faster than any outdoor drama had prior to it. And so when we're thinking about what it means for people to see this kind of history, this version of history, and then take that back with them versus the history that actually happened, it shows how much is really at stake in these productions. And, you know, now the Eastern band you know, has a really profitable casino that's enabled them to do a lot for the Eastern band with hospitals and education and providing for the Eastern band in a way that Unto These Hills never really did. And so the diversification of the tourist economy in and around Cherokee kind of takes Unto These Hills, like Unto These Hills is no longer really like the main billing. And so it's really interesting to see how Unto These Hills, I mean, it's still a thing, it's still performed every year, but it's not the only thing. But sorry, I know that's a lot, but it's, <laughs> there, no. there are a lot of pieces, pieces to this puzzle. Yeah, and I think that definitely helps kind of give um, our listeners just a, they need to read those chapters because, yeah, it impacts all that. And, you know, I think that definitely paints the picture of the shifts that you kind of outline there. And it is complicated, you know, um, and it's interesting to see how, you know, that performance is decentered a little bit, you know, in that way. Um, so I think that is it was great to kind of hear that kind of spelled out too. Um, and then finally the third stop of the book, you know, you take us to Ohio for chapters five and six for yet another drama to come. So going, kind of going back to what you were talking about, like earlier in the conversation about these like articulations of U S nationalism and identity. Um, can you kind of come back to that here and talk about it specifically with this performance? Sure. And, you know, one of, one of the things I kind of, I joke about is each one of these productions is so strange in its own way, but Tecumseh is the one that I honestly struggled with the most because Tecumseh premieres in the early 1970s. And so this is on the heels of, you know, the Vietnam war we're not that far removed from the civil rights movements, 
But this is also, when we get to the 1970s, this is when the American Indian movement has become a national, if not international force to be reckoned with. And I could not understand for the longest time why the people behind this drama in in Chillicothe chose Tecumseh. Because Tecumseh's goal was to stop American expansion. He spends a decade building up an alliance, a confederation of native nations, and eventually sides with the British in the War of 1812 because he wants to stop American expansion. And, you know, Tecumseh dies in the Battle of the Thames in 1813. And his, you know, the Confederation crumbles in a sense after that. And the Shawnee are removed from what's now Ohio, forcibly removed from what's now Ohio in the wake of the war. And, you know, they end up, they're removed to what's now Oklahoma. And, you know, I, I went to Chillicothe. I talked with, you know, one of the, the founding members of the organization and I talked to, you know, the executive director and it was, I still just could not understand why Tecumseh. And what I did with the Tecumseh production that I did not do with the other two, you know, you said earlier before about like playing tourist and things like that. So I didn't read anything about Tecumseh before I went. I was like, I am 100% going to play the tourist and see what happens. And okay, at that moment, I knew less about Tecumseh than a professor of Native history probably should, um, which I later remedied. But the way they have the storyline set up, and this is the one where I think the plot is the most crucial to understanding what I said before about how symphonic dramas play with history. Because they have it set up where, um, okay, so let me tell you the historical part first. That'll probably be easier. So I mentioned Tecumseh and his confederation, but his brother, Tenskwatawa, is also a really important figure historically. And Tenskwatawa was the Shawnee prophet who had, you know, a number of really critical visions. And some scholars have argued that he was the foundation of the movement, not Tecumseh. You know, Tecumseh was the military side and, you know, the the one who traveled and built up the Confederation, while Tenskwatawa was the one whose ideology was kind of driving this whole thing. And so that's the historical side of it. What the drama does is make Tenskwatawa unequivocally the villain and Tecumseh, the prophet. And so there's a scene in the drama where Tecumseh is getting ready to leave. And Tenskwatawa is like, I, how am I going to you know, keep the people here? How are, Nobody's going to listen to me. And so in the drama, they have Tecumseh as the prophet who you know, gives his prophecies to Tenskwatawa and is like, okay, you just pretend that these were yours. And, you know, that's how we'll keep people here. That's, you know, how we'll do all that. And so that was the version 
that I saw. And then I came home and I started reading books by, you know, R. David Edmonds and Adam Jortner. And I had to be like, okay, hold up. And it honestly, it took me way longer than it should have for me to be like, oh, the version I saw is the dramatic version. And that's not at all what happened. And it was a really shocking moment because, and, you know, one thing I say in the book is, you know, it's like, why should we care, right? That the dramas aren't historically accurate. Like they're supposed to be entertaining. It's like, you know, you're focusing too much on the historical part versus like, just let people go see a show, right? But if that's the version of history, and again, thinking about this with Unto These Hills as well, if this is the version of history that people are witnessing, but it's not historically accurate, that has some really significant implications for how we understand Native history. And with Tecumseh, that's for it to be a successful drama, that's the story they have to tell. Because if you're going to focus on Tecumseh's life and his mission, if you want the audience to walk away feeling what you want them to feel, having seen an outdoor drama, that's how it has to be. Because we know Tecumseh dies with his dream unfulfilled. And the reason that he does not succeed is exactly why they can celebrate him in, in a drama. And it's, it's one of those shows that it is. And again, like I said, people are probably thinking I'm taking this way too seriously, but to teach native history requires a lot of unpacking of these kind of myths and larger kind of historical frameworks. And, you know, there's, there's a great line that I use in here. I think it's from Alfred Cave where he's like, Tecumseh is the perfect Indian because, you know, he's noble, he's brave. And by 1813, he's dead. And so that's, that's how they can kind of, Un, they can kind of like disassemble the historical Tecumseh and kind of put him back as a dramatic figure. And it's, yeah, it's just, it's absolutely incredible. Yeah. There's a lot of like you, like the book synopsis, like from the UNC website says it's like summarizing, it's reworking the terms of these different traumas, right. On white settler terms. So it's like very, problematic in that way um and like you were saying like what the takeaways are for a viewer um you know because i'm thinking about that a lot with my institution florida state you know there's a lot of performance there too and i always wonder like 
what do people that go here learn about that? You know, so how is that? Oof, like I kind of, and I think you did a really good job over the course of the book juggling all these different, like I said at the beginning, tensions, and that must not have been easy. <laughs> it was, <laughs> there, there were a lot of times, you know, like after I'd go see whether I was in Pendleton or Cherokee or Chillicothe, you know, I'd see the show and I'd go back to my hotel room and I'd like frantically scribble down, you know, I was taking notes throughout the show, but I'd go back and I would write down not only what I saw, but how I felt and how I saw the audience leaving. And it ranged from, you know, people kind of slowly and without speaking, kind of like picking their things up and then like leaving. And what was the most kind of jarring to me was at the end of like Tecumseh, because it ends like with his body being carried off stage. And then, you know, the lights go down and people just kind of like got up and like, you know, started talking with the people that came with, you know, picked up their stuff and out they go. And I was just sitting there thinking, holy smokes, like, what did I just see? But I think one of, one of the keys, because, you know, if we're placing Tecumseh in this moment of contestations, you know, thinking about its creation in the 1970s, these contestations over U.S. nationalism and identity and it also opens just a couple of years before the American Bicentennial. And with these productions, and this isn't meant as, you know, like a dig or anything on these organizations or these productions or, you know, the economic impact that they've had, because the economic impact is really critical. But... In these, I think the way the dramas are scripted tells us so much about the moment in which they originated. Because in each of these eras, we have contestations over identity and belonging and, you know, contestations over things like citizenship and it's really, it's just really incredible to see how performance can tell us so much about history. And I'm loving the chance to get to like nerd out about the performance side with you. <laughs> um, because it is, it's such a powerful tool and I, it really can teach us so much. Yeah, and then the, your historical side, like you were just getting at, contextualizes those moments in which these originally came out too. So you are looking at, you know, beyond just the actual performance too, which I think is great. Like, again, the balancing act that you've had to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But thank you so much, Dr. Phillips. This was like a great conversation and I learned a lot and hopefully our listeners have learned a lot and will buy the book to learn even more, <laughs> you know? <laughs> 
Um, so thank you for joining us on New Books and Performing Arts. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. And uh, I want to ask you, too, as we're wrapping up, what other projects do you have in the works these days? So, you know, I, I told the story at the beginning about how I ended up writing this book in the first place. And so I had written about the pageant on our reservation. It was called the Apostle Islands Indian Pageant. I wrote about that in my dissertation, but it didn't make the cut for the book because it only happened a couple of years. It's, you know, I can talk a lot about what it meant historically, but there's no like contemporary counterpart for it. And so, oh, this sounds so corny when I say it, but you know, the, the first book took me farther from Redcliffe than I ever would have imagined. Like I never thought I would end up in like, no offense to Ohio, but like, I never thought I'd end up in Chillicothe, Ohio, like doing research for this. It, it took me everywhere. And I'm, I'm really grateful, you know, for, for everything I got to experience in writing this book. But the second book is actually going to take me back to Redcliffe. Um, I'm going to start with, with the pageant in the 1920s. And I'm going to look at activism, environmentalism, and tourism on and around Redcliffe from the 1920s to the present day. And so performance will still be in there. It'll still be part of it, but I am, that's, that's my hope with my, my next book project is that, you know, it'll, it'll take me back to Redcliffe and, you know, give me a chance to write a book that's for Redcliffe and not just a book about Redcliffe. So I'm in the early, early stages of that project, but I'm very excited about it and excited to see where that one's going to take me. Yeah. And that's awesome that it's so meaningful for you too, like in that way. So I'll be really excited to see where that goes. And maybe if I'm still doing this by then, then maybe you can come back and talk about that one too. (laughs) Sounds good. Let's do it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But again, thank you so much. This was such a pleasure talking with you today. Yeah. Thank you again. It was, it was really great to get a chance, like I said, to nerd out about the performance (laughs) side of it. (laughs) Oh yeah. And listeners, just like as a quick recap, um, this was an interview with Dr. Katrina M. Phillips, author of Staging Indigeneity, Salvage Tourism, and the Performance of Native American History, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2021. And this is Emily Allen, and I'll catch you next time here on the New Books Network. (laughs) 